0: this is section one thirty two of mark twain the complete interviews this librivox recording is in the public domain interview number one hundred and thirty two mark twain the greatest american humorist returning home talks at length to the world new york world october fourteenth nineteen hundred page three mark twain aboard the minnehaha is due at this port now he is returning after many years absence abroad to dwell permanently in his native land he talked with the world correspondent in london who gives this interesting account of what he said london october sixth if it were the good fortune of the journalist to have only mark twain to interview his lot would indeed be cast in pleasant places when the world correspondent called upon him today at his london hotel he was received with that charming courtesy and dignified geniality which are the outward stamp of the noble personal character of the greatest living humorist. The inevitable Brobdingnagian pipe was produced and lit. Throwing himself back on the smoke-room couch at Brown's Hotel in Albemarle Street, Mark Twain began in that dreamy New England accent of his with its delightful musical cadences, "'Why, of course, I am—' very glad to speak for the world whenever i arrive in a new place or whenever i leave it i always make it a point to answer as well as i can any questions that may be put to me by the boys but between seasons i never talk the same rule guides me in connection with public appearances i have to work and i like to do it as systematically as i can have you been busy with your pen amid the distractions of london well london you see doesn't distract me i find it about the best possible place to work in i like it too as a place of residence better than any i know outside hartford where i am always happiest and feel best here i meet men of my own tongue and i have many friends for although seemingly i live a retired life here i am constantly going out to dinners you can understand that at the close of a day's work it is a big luxury a great relaxation to dine in pleasant company in absolute privacy where you can say what you like with the knowledge that it will not get into print these dinners i enjoy it's the luncheons that break in upon your time and upset your working arrangements but dinners why i can do with millions of dinners is it true that you have resolved never to leave the united states again not a word of truth in it perhaps we may spend the rest of our days at home i don't know and no consideration on earth could induce me to give a pledge about that or anything else that is another of my rules of life i never give pledges or promises about things of that sort if i felt myself under the constraint of a pledge the situation would become so irksome to me that only on that account alone i should be irresistibly compelled to come away again no as far as i am able to speak about a subject on which other people have the controlling voice more or less i propose to stay the winter in new york and then go back to hartford in the spring but do you really think it possible that such an indefatigable traveller as you have been can settle down at home won't you feel restless an indefatigable traveller that's where i am misunderstood now i have made thirty-four long journeys in my life and thirty-two of them were made under the spur of absolute compulsion i mean it under nothing but sheer compulsion there always was an imperative reason i had to gather material for books or sketches i had to stump around lecturing to make money or. I had to go abroad for the health or the education of my family. For love of travel, never any of these thirty-two journeys. There is no man living who cares less about seeing new places and peoples than I. You are surprised, but it's the gospel truth. I had a surfeit of it. When I started out in 1867 for a six months tour in the quaker city i was a voracious sightseer with nearly all the rest of that gang i said to myself this is the opportunity of my life never again shall i have the chance the time or the money to see the old world we lived up to that idea we went in for seeing everything that was to be seen. In a city of inexhaustible treasures like Rome, we got up at six in the morning, and throughout the whole day, in rain or shine, we made a perpetual procession through picture galleries, churches, museums, palaces, looking at things which... For the most part, did not interest us one cent, but which we thought we had to see. And we saw them. If our meals interfered with our seeing any old thing, our meals were put aside. At nine or ten at night, we returned to our hotel, our brains and our bodies reeling with fatigue and utter exhaustion. My head used to ache my eyes to swim but i would not succumb to the terrible temptation to throw myself on the bed as if i did so i could not rise from it again before morning i had to resist because we had to see something else by moonlight or because there was no moon or some other foolish reason the only rest we had was when we went a short voyage from one port to another in the mediterranean and then i slept all the time what was the result of this insensate sightseeing? why that i was so fagged that i lost the capacity to appreciate most of what i saw or to carry away any coherent idea of it since then only Hard necessity has ever driven me traveling. When I went around the world five years ago, it was because I wanted money to pay off debts that were a nuisance to me. They burdened my conscience. People say that it was to relieve my creditors. Not at all. It was far more to relieve Clemens than creditors i could not be happy until i got rid of that debt i have never recovered from the quaker city surfeit of sightseeing and don't think there is any reasonable prospect of my doing so now don't you find theatres as much of a relaxation as dinners no that is another mistake i had a surfeit of theatres too My family are fond of the play and go very often but they don't enjoy themselves as much as they otherwise would when they persuade me to go with them you see when i was a reporter on the san francisco call i always had a full day's work i had to do all the police reports together with any other odd assignments that might turn up always finishing up by going to seven theaters every evening i had to write something about each of them and as a reporter yourself you can understand that with the fag end of my day's work to finish and seven critical notices of high-class performances of the most varied kind to write up i could not devote that leisure to each play that as a conscientious dramatic critic i should like ten minutes here a quarter of an hour there that was all i could afford because there might be a couple more night assignments waiting me at the office i was very hurried all the time the result is that when I go to a playhouse now, and I have been there about fifteen minutes or half an hour, I begin to fidget around, thinking I shall get all behind if I stay here any longer. I must be off to the other three or four houses, and I have still that murder story to write, so that the family don't care much about my company at the theater that is another example of how bad a surfeit is how long did you continue to keep the san francisco call going let me see uh, just about twelve months at the end of that time i was reduced to such a pitiable condition of mental destitution was so completely worn out and impoverished in mind and body by the responsibilities of my position that the editor invited me to resign i didn't want to be ungrateful to a man who had allowed me to learn so much of different kinds of newspaper work in so short a time so i resigned and mind you there was very little chance of another job either in fact it was three or four months before i got one have you been doing much lately with that autobiography that is to be published a hundred years after your death oh yes i have added a good deal to it from time to time i only write it when the spirit moves me and don't lay myself out to keep it regularly going i find it one of the most interesting works i have ever undertaken there is something very pleasant in thinking that what you are writing won't be published until the person you are writing about and every one who can have any personal affection for him or her is dead i find i can take such large calm views of people so free from flattery on the one hand and from any taint of malice on the other when i am writing my own unvarnished unbiased opinions and impressions there has never been an autobiography or biography or diary or whatever you like to call it that has been written with quite the detachment from all anxiety about what the readers may think of it or its writer as this one of mine peeps you might be disposed to think was a miracle of candour even at his own expense but even peeps wrote with the conscientiousness that his contemporaries were looking over his shoulder and despite all he could do he was fettered by a sense of restraint that conscientiousness produced i am free from all that and i think that any work undertaken in that spirit and with that intention of quietly and frankly giving a faithful picture of the men of this or any time will be of interest to posterity it should be a human document of value provided it is reasonably intelligent and above all wholly true to life as the writer sees life and judges it is it your method to describe events or only men you can't do one without touching upon the other when i meet a man or a woman who interests me and i feel i can write something about them that would be of interest or value to people a hundred years hence i jot down my impressions it is just as the fit takes me have you been watching the elections here with any interest not very much i have not had time to read the papers but from what i can judge the system of appealing to the country here is preferable to ours i mean it is less of a strain on the country the disillusion is proclaimed here one day and the next the arrangements for the elections are in full swing while by the end of the week a good many members of the new house are elected we have the elections on one day but our candidates are nominated way back in june and are not elected until november i think the strain and dislocation of business here is less when one district elects its member there is an end of the turmoil as far as that one is concerned and its constituents just go about their business as usual looking on at the fight as it proceeds elsewhere but what i don't understand is why this dissolution has been proclaimed just now the government had a big majority the opposition had nothing particular to say against the settlement in south africa that the government intended and now after it all it seems that they will get about the same majority that they had before and what do you think about the american campaign well you see i have only read scraps and snatches of news in the papers here not sufficient to stir my prejudices or partialities i am going back to vote i mean i shall vote as i shall happen to be there when the election comes on i have been paying taxes all the time i have been away so i suppose i am entitled to exercise the franchise you asked me about what is called imperialism well i have formed views about that question i am at the disadvantage of not knowing whether our people are for or against spreading themselves over the face of the globe i should be sorry if they are for i don't think that it is wise or a necessary development as to china i quite approve of our government's action in getting free of that complication they are withdrawing i understand having done what they wanted. That is quite right. We have no more business in China than in any other country that is not ours. There is the case of the Philippines. I have tried hard, and yet I cannot for the life of me comprehend how we got into that mess. Perhaps we could not have avoided it. Perhaps it was inevitable that we should come to be fighting the natives of those islands but i cannot understand it and have never been able to get at the bottom of the origin of our antagonism to the natives i thought we should act as their protector not try to get them under our heel we were to relieve them from spanish tyranny to enable them to set up a government of their own and we were to stand by and see that it got a fair trial it was not to be a government according to our ideas but a government that represented the feeling of the majority of the filipinos a government according to filipino ideas that would have been a worthy mission for the united states but now why we have got into a mess a quagmire from which each fresh step renders the difficulty of extrication immensely greater. I'm sure I wish I could see what we were getting out of it, and all it means to us as a nation. Have you any literary plans for the future? No, but I have some work on hand which I'm getting along with now and then i have a book half finished but when the other half will be done the lord only knows i need scarcely ask how you are you look the picture of health i have been to the doctor lately nothing more serious than lumbago i have invested all the capital possible to produce a good prosperous lumbago it is not my fault that it didn't succeed what are your plans on returning to america our original plan was to stay in new york as i said for the winter and go to hartford in the spring i heard today, however that there is a chance of this being altered i do not complain i only ask that i shall be told in time to arrange this is my last day here we sail in the morning from tilbury on the american transport liner minnehaha i could not get on one of the fast steamers they are engaged over and over again but i don't mind i like the long voyage although it is not so agreeable to the family i am never seasick now i must be off to see my friend pulteney bigelow in chelsea i hope the rain has not made it impossible to go on the top of a bus that is the mode of conveyance i prefer in london and so with a hearty handshake and good wishes mark twain departed end of interview number one hundred and thirty two read by john greenman